Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When last week's 5.1 magnitude earthquake hit near San Jose, more than 2 million people received an alert several seconds before they felt shaking. So what should we do when we get an alert? And how do earthquake early warning systems work? Seismologist Dr. Lucy Jones is here to answer all your earthquake questions. We'll also learn what California is and should be doing to prepare for earthquakes big and small. And we want to hear from you. Have you gotten an earthquake early warning alert? What did you do? Join us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Earthquakes loom large in California. The San Andreas Fault, which stretches some 750 miles through much the length of the state, produced the devastating 1906 San Francisco and the 89 Loma Prieta quakes. And a hidden fault produced the destructive 94 Northridge quake, fueling earthquake fear and myth and lore, which get reignited every time we feel a bit of shaking, as many of us did recently. This hour, we get answers to your questions about earthquakes, advice on how to prepare for them, and learn more about the developments to help protect us that the state is working on, all from renowned seismologist Dr. Lucy Jones, research associate at the Seismological Laboratory of Caltech and founder of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Dr. Jones, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So earthquakes... They happen all the time that don't draw a ton of attention, but the 5.1 earthquake that hit near San Jose last week really did. Can you tell us a bit about that quake, which I guess struck on the Calaveras Fault? Right. It's it's your standard sort of Bay Area earthquake. Uh, The Bay Area is dominated by several parallel faults, all part of the San Andreas system, the San Andreas, Hayward, and Calaveras. And the Calaveras tends to have more common earthquakes of this smaller size, whereas the San Andreas and Hayward tend to have larger, more destructive uh, uh, events. This was, you know, it's uh, at a standard sort of depth uh, on one of these strikes that faults moving a bit of San Jose north compared to uh, the eastern part of California. Um, but it, it, because it's only a five, it was on a fault like two kilometers across. Mm. Still, there were a lot of people that noted that there wasn't really any damage reported. Why is that notable? Well, number one, <laughs> given our building codes, you really shouldn't have any damage from a five anywhere in California. Mm. But even more so, this earthquake was not located near people. So it's on a fault that's 
about one or two kilometers across. Every point on that one or two kilometers is giving off energy. And then it dies off as it travels through the rock, just like sound. You know, they, nobody out on the street is hearing me, me speak right now. And so the only place that got even any sort of shaking was right on top of it, which is a pretty rural area. Now, those as the waves travel out and they die off, you know, most of the Bay Area felt it, but at a much lower shaking level. You know, we, we make a mistake here in California thinking magnitude what's, is what you feel. Yeah. It's not. Magnitude is one number expressing the total energy released in the earthquake. What you feel is described on another scale called intensity. And, you know, and it's actually, they were originally defined from a subjective experience. So intensity ones means you didn't feel it. Intensity three is, oh yeah, wow, that's an earthquake. Intensity six is where you start throwing things off of shelves. And intensity seven, starting to do more damage, really intensity nine before you do a lot of damage in California. The maximum intensity we got from this earthquake was only intensity five, and that was only down there southeast of, of San Jose. Even by the time you, you know, San Jose, which was the closest, was only intensity four. Hmm. So, and, and as you say, depth matters, right? The depth of, of the quake. I guess this is a good time if you could to give us a little mini lesson on how earthquakes happen. <laughs> Okay, right. So an earthquake happens because one side of a fault moves with respect to the other suddenly. It's a lot like snapping your fingers. Right? When I snap my fingers, I have two surfaces in frictional contact. If I uh, just push them together lightly, they would slide past each other without producing a sound. You need that frictional resistance to get the sudden motion that produces shaking as one of its effects. So the earthquake's the movement of the fault. What you feel is like the waves, you know, is, is like the sound that waves in the air that have traveled into my ear and make my ear vibrate. So, uh, and that shaking then dies off with distance. It, the good news in California is it dies off really quickly because our, our uh, uh, we have so many faults and our rocks are actually pretty hot that dampening with distance goes on very quickly compared to say the East Coast. The bad news is, is when you're right on top of the earthquake, then it's a lot worse. So what really matters is how close you are to the earthquake along with the magnitude and then potentially your local soil conditions that can amplify the shaking. I see. If it's at depth, right? So this is seven, what, it was, you know, something like six miles down, then everybody's at least six miles away from it, right? Um, in California, we generally have what are considered shallow earthquakes. That's considered a very shallow earthquake because if you got up to a magnitude six, then the fault will be longer than six kilometers and it'll probably break through to the surface. And since every point on the fault is giving off energy, now it's a lot closer to you. Depth matters in places like the Pacific Northwest or one of these really deep earthquakes that are maybe 50 or 100 kilometers down. And then everybody's at least 50 or 100 kilometers away. We're talking with Dr. Lucy Jones, Research Associate at the Seismological Laboratory of Caltech. And you, our listeners, are invited to ask Dr. Jones your questions about earthquakes. We're also curious if you got an alert. That was one of the reasons that this particular quake in San Jose got some attention. Some 2 million people got an alert on their phones. And if you did what you did after you got it, you can email forum at kqed.org, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. So Dr. Jones, some people had 18, 19 seconds 
even before they felt any shaking. Can you tell us how how that works, how the notification works? Okay, if you got that much shaking, you were pretty, if you got that much time, you were pretty far away from the earthquake and probably hadn't just barely felt it at all. Um, what it is is that you know the earthquake waves take time to get to you. We move on the fault, the waves travel out, they're dying off, but it takes time to go. It's the speed of sound in rock, which is about two miles a second. So if you had, you know, 20 seconds uh, warning, that implies that you were at least uh, uh, 40 seconds, or let's say 40 kilometers away from, uh, or 40 miles away from the earthquake. So what we've done is we've taken the existing seismographic system that, you know, Berkeley started in Northern California, Caltech started down here, the USGS pulled us together, has been funding it for years. We have something called the California Integrated Seismic Network. That's the information that tells you it was a 5.1 and what the location was. With early warning, what we've done is try to get that information processed so quickly that we can tell it to you before the shaking actually gets to you because it takes that two miles per second uh, time for the waves to travel out. Now that's also, that's the speed of the S wave, the strong shaking. Mm -hmm. There's also a P wave, which is a compressive wave. It's a sound wave and it travels faster and it usually gets to you by, um, uh, well, it gets there more quickly. If we have a lot of stations near where the earthquake happened, we can record that P wave, get an estimate of the size. The full size will actually takes more time to actually even be determined. Um, but we get an estimate of the size and use that information to send it out. And the speed of light is faster than the speed of sound. So we can send that electronic message and get it to you before the shaking gets there. But if you were right on top of the earthquake, it's your sh experiencing the shaking that's going to tell other people that the earthquake's begun. So the closer you are, the less time you have. But of course, the farther away you are, more time, but less damage. Yeah, I think you're beginning to answer Christopher's question. Christopher writes, why is there such a wide range of time before seismic events and the notifications we hope precede them? And then Christopher goes on to say, I'd hardly expect anyone to duck cover hold on if they'd be doing so for two minutes before the shaking starts. What should we oh. do when we get the notifications? And I don't know if there's more you want to say about the wide range of time in between. Well, the wide range of time, you know, we, I think we did cover it. It's like the more time you get, the less need you have of it, unfortunately. Um, but with enough stations getting off the P wave, we can get some warning before shaking gets anywhere. Um, and so there, it can be useful. The question of what you do with it, uh, this seems to be asking as a personal you know, thing. The most practical things you can be doing, of course, are done with automatic systems. But um, as an individual, uh, the other thing is, you know, does the message tell you what your expected shaking is? If your expected shaking is intensity three or four, or if it says, you know, it's a magnitude five, you know, 20, 20 miles away, you don't need duck and cover at that point because it's, you know, you, you know, you're not going to be getting shaking. And that's one of the advantages of the system. Um, you know, Japan had this long before we did, and it had been in place several years before the 2011 Tohoku earthquake happened. And, um, but not many people had bothered to download the app. And uh, in the month after the earthquake, there were a million downloads in Tokyo of the app to get this because people found it very reassuring when the aftershocks happened. 
to know that it wasn't going to get big. I mean, that's one of the other things at the beginning of an earthquake, you don't know whether it's going to get bigger or not. Mm. And part of this is to be able to reassure you, this isn't going to be that bad, right? That's a really positive psychological impact. If you are going to be you know, if, if you've got a really big earthquake that's going on for two minutes, you want to be under your table for two minutes because that's when uh, you're going to be seeing lots of things being thrown off of shelves. And one thing they do say, especially if it's going to be strong shaking, just a few seconds extra time to do drop and cover can be really helpful. You know, when we were first setting this up back when I worked for the USGS a, a decade ago, we did an experiment to figure out how long it took people to do drop cover hold on and yeah. asked all of us to, you know, just, you know, be given a notice, ring a bell, and then, you know, get into drop cover hold on and then check your watch. I never could do it in less than 10 seconds. I'm still, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out. It seemed like it shouldn't have been that long, but it seemed like every time I did it, by the time I looked at my watch, it was 10 seconds. So there's some finite amount of time it takes to do that. And if you're in a really big earthquake and it's really strong shaking, it might be pretty difficult to do as that goes on. So a few extra seconds to get into a safe position really could make a difference. Uh, and, but again, a lot of it's around the psychology of putting you in control because it's the uncontrolled nature of earthquakes that scare us so much. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, the psychology of feeling some sense of control with something that is so often out of control. And, and let's face it, we never know when one is coming. And so just a second, maybe all you need to stop doing something that could be quite dangerous if you were trying to do it while the earth is shaking. <laughs> Well, there's where you get a commercial setting. It doesn't have to be an automated procedure, but just imagine if your dentist's office had a an alarm to ring that would be able to say, you know, get the get the drill out of your mouth. There are things I don't want going on when they're strong shaking. Yes, for sure. We'll have more with Dr. Lucy Jones or with you, our listeners, after the break. We're talking earthquakes. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I feel the earth move under my feet. I feel the sky tumbling down. I feel my heart start to tremble whenever you're around. 
We are taking your earthquake-related questions this hour with seismologist Dr. Lucy Jones. Have you always wanted to ask a seismologist a question? Now's your chance. We're also talking because last week's 5.1 earthquake near San Jose got a lot of attention, and a lot of people got an earthquake early warning alert on their phones. If you did, what did you do? When did you get it? We're curious. Or what are your questions about the science of earthquakes and how to stay safe during one? Also curious if you have an earthquake kit and how you have used it. You can email forum at kqed.org with your stories or questions. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. And Jessica writes, I got an alert after shaking had already started. I'm in North San Jose. It felt strong here. Jennifer tweets, I did get an alert. I have an iPhone and didn't even know about the alert system. After hearing all the reports about it, I've downloaded the app. I did not get an alert, Jennifer tweets, but downloaded the app. There are several people who did not get the alert because they need to download an app to be able to get it right, as opposed to, say, the Android system where, where it was automatic with, with a uh, basically a deal with the state. But uh, Dr. Jones, I don't know if you have any other thoughts or recommendations with regard to apps to download related to making sure you get an alert. Um, I don't know the details of all of them. That's all something that's gone on with the, uh, you know, with the USGS and the network since, uh, since I left the, the agency. Um, but you know, you can easily just do a little exploring on your, your phone and you can probably figure it out. The good news is, is they are sending out the warning much more broadly than they did originally. Um, the first big warning here in Southern California came with the 2019 Ridgecrest earthquake, but that early system, uh, people had made the decision that, you know, you don't need to know about this at intensity three, so we won't send you a warning. And so people felt it, didn't get a warning and said, mm -hmm. oh, the system doesn't work. And and that was not understanding the psychological benefit of knowing that it's going to stay small. So I'm glad that they've updated that system. And that's no longer the case. Well, our producer Caroline is sending me that there's Berkeley's My Shake app, the Quake Alert USA app, Shake Ready SD in San Diego, and Google has already integrated My Shake into Android, as we mentioned already. Um, and then Kevin tweets, if the fault that gives off energy can be kilometers long, how are epicenters determined? <laughs> epicenter is the point that it first starts moving so you don't move over the whole fault at the same time it's like ripping a piece of paper think about it if you had a piece of paper and you just tried to pull on the whole thing it wouldn't work what you do is you put a rip in on one side a crack and then you rip down the paper and yet that sound you're hearing as i ripped the paper is the, the, the wave energy being released by the disruption of the rip. And so the same thing goes on in the earthquake. It starts at the epicenter, but then ruptures down the fault, every point on that fault giving off energy. And so the epicenter, by being where it starts, is the easiest one for us to determine. That's where the very first wave comes from. So we tell you about epicenter because we can, but in fact, the whole fault is involved and is really important. Well, there are some questions about um, little quakes and some questions about whether or not little quakes beget big quakes. <laughs> well, it's interesting. It goes both way. If I heard, you know, the little ones means you're going to get a big one or that the big, the little ones are releasing the energy. So you exactly. won't have a big one, right? Actually, neither one's directly true. Um, first, 
every distribution of, of earthquakes, anything we've ever looked at from every earthquake recorded in the world to the earthquakes being recorded as aftershocks for one particular event, that has what's called a B value by seismologists. It's the uh, relative distribution of large to small earthquakes. There's always way more small ones than there are big ones. And that ratio is quite constant. So that for each, like er every magnitude five, you're gonna have 10 magnitude fours, 100 magnitude threes, 1000 magnitude twos, et cetera. And so that's, a constant of how earthquakes happen. There's a little variability. We argue about whether that's real or, or measurement errors. So when you have a lot of earthquakes in general, you need to have more earthquakes. And if there's lots of small ones, you're probably gonna end up having some big one, right? So it's, but that could be over um, a pretty wide range of time, depending on how it happens. The other idea that the small ones can eliminate the need for the big ones, doesn't work either because I saw there's 10 times as many fours as there are fives, but the five releases 32 times the energy of the four. So you can never release enough energy in the small ones to get rid of the need for the big ones. Wow. You did call last week's San Jose earthquake a once every decade event. How, how can you, how can you know that sort of time range or, or why does that feel about right to you? But that's looking at the catalog and seeing how often the Calaveras Fault has a magnitude five or so earthquake. Mm, right? That's the, that's really only historical, and and that's the way we manage most of our earthquakes. We need to record them for a while and see what the pattern is in that region. And you know, we've looked for various other sorts of ways of, you know predicting or figuring out what the pattern is. I mean, we'd love to have patterns. That's what scientists do, right? We look for patterns and then we test them to make sure the pattern's real and not just wishful thinking. And the problem with earthquakes is every time we've tested any pattern that seemed to do better than just random, we usually end up proving that it's just random. Um, so we can, we can determine the rate at which earthquakes happen quite clearly. At California averages about three magnitude fives a year. That's a, a general statement of what the history has been. Who knows where it's going to happen? Uh, actually, it's probably more like five or six magnitude fives a year if you include the area up around uh, uh, Cape Mendocino that has lots of earthquakes. Um, and then, but, you know, a lot of the time they're up in Cape Mendocino. Some of the times they're down to where we are. Uh, and that's the only, that rate is well determined. The distribution within the rate is random. Well, let me go to B in Sonoma, who is on the line with us. B, you're on. Hi. Um, I didn't feel the San Jose one, but I was, I'm up in uh, Sonoma County, and um, I was about seven miles from the, uh, the one that occurred on September 13th, um, and it was like a four, a four and a three, uh, I think. Um, I don't recall the, the magnitude. But um, I got the alert, and I have a flip phone, so I didn't even surprise me because I don't have apps. So um, uh, I got both of the alerts at the exact time as the shaking was happening. Hmm. So, um, and I could feel the. It felt, first, it felt like the. It went up. I could feel an up because I was outside, and on the ground, so I could feel an upward motion, and then. Um, and then kind of a wavy feeling afterwards. It was almost like, you know, feeling like I was surfing on, on water. Um, yeah. But, um, and, and so I got two alerts, almost one right after the other for, um, and I think I was about 
seven miles from the epicenter. So, well, B, thanks for sharing that. I got that one too, actually. And uh, I love the description that you gave earlier, Dr. Jones, um, or or that you described it like a sound wave, because it does feel like a wave when you're riding it out. It is a wave. It yeah. absolutely is a wave. Um, that's we see a lot of uh, seismologists interested in music because we're we're working with the same phenomenon. And Lisa writes, both my husband and I received the notification loud and clear. We were on the seventh floor of a hotel in Oahu and took cover in the doorway until we grabbed our phones and saw it was an event back home. Since it seems the earthquake detection system alerts, no matter where you are, we will be less concerned next time we hear it. I, I wonder, are there settings, though, also that you can yeah. have it alert you if you, and, you know, yeah. if yeah, it's ahead. going to depend upon the the, um, the app that you're using, and I think some of them allow you to like put in your home, and then it would you know it's giving you the alerts based on your home. Obviously, you're not there, and I you know some of the systems uh, use your location to give you the alert, which would be much more appropriate. The other thing that I'm struck by is that Lisa said that they took cover in the doorway. So <laughs> I wanted to ask you about this. Should we run to door frames when we get that oh, alert? No, it's it's a longstanding California issue. So actually, it, it dates from the 1952 Kern County earthquake, which was a seven and a half, did a lot of damage. And there were uh, a bunch of old adobe buildings. This was up near Bakersfield um, that, that dissolved, right? The adobe just comes apart. And so there was someone from the Red Cross that saw some of these destroyed buildings where the building's in rubble, but the door frame was still standing. And they went, oh, boy, door frames must be a great place to be. And the Red Cross started teaching, go, go to the doorways. Um, and it, the problem is, is that it's only a good place to be if you're in a 200-year-old adobe house. Any mm -hmm. other type of construction, the doorway is really not any stronger than anywhere else and often has a door, which is then flying at you. So let's use a bit of logic on what you should do. And you can understand why the recommendation has become drop cover, hold on. Most likely thing that's gonna, that could hurt you is things flying around your room uh, because mostly our buildings do really well, right? But flying objects, you know, there's, uh, I've hooked down my bookcases, a lot of people haven't, but I still have pictures frames on them and a lot of books and I don't want those books flying at my head. Going under the table protects me from all of that. The other thing is maybe you think you want to get outside, but if it's a strong enough shaking to actually be bringing down your building, it is too strong to be running and you will be thrown to the ground. The single largest type of injury we see, well, there's two. One is broken legs and sprained ankles from people trying to run when the ground's shaking too hard to be able to do it and they get thrown to the ground and they injure themselves. The other one is actually glass in the feet people jump out of bed and run outside and run through broken glass from their windows. So running turns out to be a really dangerous thing to do. It's instinctively what we want, but it's not a good idea. And if, right, and if it's bad enough that it's actually gonna be bringing down your house, the, the table turns out to be even a better place to be. I mean, we've seen uh, you know, concrete floors held up by spindly little school desks uh, in the collapse of a building in Mexico City. So this, the, Tables do a remarkably good job of, of protecting you both from objects and from what's coming down. And the doorway, I'm afraid, is a, is a myth coming out of a, a very long history of earthquakes in California. Hmm. Well, this caller writes, I got the alert while in my car and wondered what I should have done. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, car, it, it, 
if it's, well, again, if it's not very strong shaking, you're not even going to notice. It has to be pretty strong shaking for it to even enter your awareness uh, when you're driving a car. I have, I was once driving in intensity six shaking and felt like I was losing, like the steering was going bad in my car. Um, so at that level, if it's strong enough to be, you know, intensity six or bigger, drift to a stop and, you know, pull to the side of the road because, you know, driving and trying to move while there's really strong shaking would be, uh, could be tossing your car over. Um, you don't obviously want to stop under an underpass <laughs> or, you know, or an overpass and, you know, keep your, try and stop in a place where there's nothing to fall on your car, but that would be only for the strongest shaking. I see. And another listener wants to know, what do you do if you don't have a big table near you? You don't want to try to run too far because as I said, it's, it's a really dangerous thing to do. Um, I remember one earthquake with, when I had very young children, I was in a room that the only furniture was a, was a piano. What I did is I, I go up to an interior wall because the other thing that's most likely to break in a California earthquake are your windows. And that's the big thing you want to protect yourself for. So, uh, you know, being maybe moved to a hallway if it's not very far away. Um, I would say a kitchen is the one room that I would try to get out of because, you know, things tend to fly out of kitchen shelves. Um, but, you know, just being up against an interior wall and, and cover your head uh, to protect it from flying objects. Well, let me go now to another caller, Arlinda in Oakland. Hi, Arlinda, you're on. Hi. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, I live in Oakland, about two miles from the Hayward Fault. Mm -hmm. I understand that that fault um, is overdue for a big quake. Um, by its timeline, that should have happened in 2013. I live in a building about two miles away, and um, we didn't feel the um, the last earthquake at all here. And the Loma Prieta barely, barely, barely mm -hmm. um, moved this building at all. Should I be afraid of, or should it, us, we're in a rock, we're built on a rock here, afraid of, of that quake? Uh, Arlinda, thanks. The okay, idea that the yeah, Hayward, yeah, overdue, and, and should Arlinda be worried? There's a, there's a bunch of things here, right. Be, you know, both the last week's quake and Loma Prieta are too far away from Oakland. You wouldn't expect to be getting a lot. The fact that you're in hard rock is a good thing. Uh, because it's the loose soils can amplify the shaking by a factor of 10 or more uh, if you've got if you've got a lot of loose soil. So you're already better off there. None of this tells you what's going to happen to you with a Hayward earthquake when you're having it really nearby. However, I would say there is overdue really doesn't make mean anything with earthquakes. Yeah, you can't wondering. do that level of accuracy to say it should have been in 2013. You know, we tried that once, right? With the Parkfield earthquake, we said, oh, look, there's been this regular pattern. The earthquake's going to happen in 1988. It, you know, it happens every 22 years. So 66, it can be 88. The next one actually was in 2004. So more than twice as long as we thought it was going to be. The only you know, whenever we've tried to make a pattern, it's one of those things that doesn't work. It's better to think of it that it's a 1% chance every year of having that earthquake because it averages, you know, 100 to 200 years apart. That's about, and especially it's been a long while. Okay, 1% per year, but it's not more than that. The fact that you're two miles away is actually a lot better than being like within a half mile. And the fact that you're on hard rock is also good but you will receive much stronger shaking than you've ever had before. 
And if you're in an older house, it will be a problem. So then maybe this is a good transition into what you can be doing about this stuff. Um, you okay. should absolutely, if your house was built before the most recent building code, which is 1997, you can get a structural engineer or a foundation specialist or contractors who specialize in this to look at your house and tell you what you can do to make it stronger. And at that distance from a fault, well, actually just about everyone in California should be doing that. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And then there are also rebate programs and things if you do need to do some stuff on your house, right? Oh, yeah. We, yeah. The, so California has what's called the Earthquake Brace and Bolt Program. Uh, and it's been rolling out through different zip codes. And they have a lottery of everybody who applies and they can give out, they, they give up to $3,000 to, to help cover the costs. Um, in the Bay Area, it probably costs a bit more than $3,000, but you're going to get that chunk of it covered. And in fact, that program is open for registration right now. It closes November 29th. And this year, they've got a big grant from FEMA, and they're going to be able to, to double the amount of, of buildings that they've done. They've done 17,000 so far over quite a few years. They're going to be able to double that with this new grant. So it's if you haven't had that done, look at applying to this because it's the government's just giving you money to get this done because it's going to be such a benefit, not just to you, but to all of your community, that your house doesn't get destroyed in the earthquake. Well, Julie writes, I got an alert, but didn't notice it until after the quake. To me, the quake felt more like a 3.5. I was surprised it was a 5.1. I was on the concrete ground floor of a building. The people on the second floor felt it more. This was in Los Gatos. We're talking with Dr. Lucy Jones about earthquakes, hearing about your earthquake experiences, taking your questions. What have you always wanted to ask a seismologist? Now's your chance. Also, your questions about the science of earthquakes, how to stay safe during one. Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram with your questions. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can always give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. You are listening to Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum, and we're taking your earthquake questions with seismologist Dr. Lucy Jones, author of The Big Ones, How Natural Disasters Have Shaped Us and What We Can Do About Them. Dr. Jones is research associate now at the Seismological Laboratory of Caltech and founder of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. To join the conversation, 866-733-6786 is the number if you want to call, or you can post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, at KQED Forum, or you can email us, forum at kqed.org. How natural disasters have shaped us. It's an interesting um, subtitle there, Dr. Jones. I think you've said the 1906 quake, the San Francisco 1906 quake has played a really big role in the way that we think about quakes and even the policies that we have around quakes as well. Can you tell us more about that? Okay, right. At the time of the 1906 earthquake, it was not even clear that earthquakes happened on faults. And uh, in fact, people would say, many people said after that event, well, you know, earthquakes never strike twice in the same place, so now we're fine. Um, but it also was the beginning of real uh, seismology in the United States. It had already gotten going in Japan by that point. Um, and in fact, one of the really famous Japanese seismologists came over uh, to help to work with seismologists in, in California after that earthquake and actually was attacked in sort of the anti-Asian bias that happened at the time mm. as he got off the boat. Wow. But um, we've, you know, there's two aspects of, of, well, there's a lot of aspects of society. The reason I use that um, title for my book is that you can see how it shapes society, how we uh, change, you know, religious thought, the idea that God is uh, causing disasters, because we hate randomness, right? We want to think that we can do overdue. We want to think that there's a prediction to it. And when it's really random, well, there must be some reason. And we, we've, we've put it on God traditionally. In the East, they put it on a yin-yang balance and disruption from, you know, bad government. But uh, um, all of those things are it sort of shapes our thought Actually trying to live with earthquakes in California has been a process. Um, the first time we talked about building codes was after the 1925 Santa Barbara earthquake. 6.8, it did a lot of damage in the city. And it was the first time that engineers, they were really just getting going in terms of how, the idea of designing a building. And they started saying, uh, they maybe we should be putting something in the building code for, for seismically active areas. Then we had the 33 Long Beach earthquake, which destroyed hundreds of schools and destroyed buildings across the LA area and uh, led to the Field Act, which was sort of the first legislation in the state of California saying uh, public schools have to be you know, built in a certain way. We have to have a oversight of the, the drawings. The plans have to be submitted to the state division of state architect, and we have to have inspection while they're being built. The result of that code, that just those two things, inspection basically, really watching what's being done as they're built, has led to the uh, our public schools are our safest buildings, hmm. but this doesn't apply to private schools. So there's really pre pretty big difference between the seismic safety of public and private schools. Well, when I think about the destructive nature of earthquakes and and how much we hear about the ones that are destructive, of course, for a good reason, it does make me wonder about how we should be thinking about the danger or the threat of earthquakes in our daily lives. I'll often hear people say, oh, I'll never move to California because of the earthquakes. 
But the reality is, is especially more recently, the death tolls in quakes seem to sometimes pale in comparison to other major natural disasters. Oh. So how should we think about the threats? Yeah. Uh, well, there's how we should and how we will, which are probably two different <laughs> questions, right? Um, actually, one of the most fascinating things I've gone through in the last few years is, is develop, un, um, introduction to the field of risk perception, the psychologists who study how we think about risks and some of the really big differences. And to take action, we have to have an emotional commitment to the risk. And the suddenness, unpredictability of earthquakes increases that emotional connection. Uh, we really don't like not knowing. And therefore, we are afraid of them out of proportion to the risk that they actually pose to our lives. So I think it's, you know, you've got to remember that the total number of people that we expect to die in our biggest, you know, the big San Andreas earthquake, 1,800 people, is equal to seven years of traffic deaths just in L.A. County. Right? So uh, you're far more likely to die on the freeway than to die in an earthquake. Hmm. However, I would say one of the things we do not sufficiently worry about is the economic impact of earthquakes. You are, you know, we, we, you need to be afraid of being bankrupted by the earthquake. The idea that only 10 of us, 10% of us have insur earthquake insurance on our homes. The fact that so few people have done the retrofitting that could pre be preventing that damage. The fact that our building code is only life safety. What the, the building code says is if you choose to build a building that's a total financial loss after the earthquake, that's your economic choice to make. The only role of government is to make sure you don't kill somebody in the process. So our building code says is, is solely about how to make sure your building does not collapse, right? but it's nothing about financial impact. And yes. we've discovered there's actually a big movement on right now that to go for a what we call a functional recovery building code, meaning you can recover the function of the, the building. Not that we're trying to prevent it from having any damage at all. That's pretty expensive. But building it just a, you know, strong enough that you can repair it afterwards adds a tiny amount to the cost of construction. The upper uh, estimates I've seen are 1% to the cost of construction. There's a building that was just built in San Francisco for affordable housing where they made a commitment to do a functional recovery standard and it added 0.1% to the cost of the construction. So, and think about it. What imagine we have, you know, you have your big San Andreas earthquake repeat of 1906 and you now have half of the buildings in downtown San Francisco unusable, banned to be entered. And maybe 10% of them needing to be torn down. How are you gonna recover the economic activity of San Francisco? You know, we're, we're building in this huge financial vulnerability and we have not acknowledged that that's a common problem as opposed to a problem mm -hmm. solely for the business owner. Hmm. Well, let me just remind listeners that a link to California's Brace and Bolt grant program for homeowners is listed on our website and on Twitter. Um, but yeah, that's a lot to think about, Dr. Jones. Let me go to Archana in Foster City. Join us. You're on. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my thanks for taking my call. Um, I had a question about. So I live in Foster City, California, which is famously built on landfill. Um, mm -hmm. So I had a question about how can we? Um, what are the risks that we face of um, when we face an earthquake living on landfill, yeah. and how can we better protect ourselves? Uh, thanks, Archana. 
That's risks actually a really, really good point. Um, one thing is that you can get more information. The California Geological Survey has a wonderful system of maps that show you the liquefaction risk um, and the uh, I don't know if you actually have amplification risk. So the, the problem with landfill is that it's often a very loose soil. And the looser the soil, uh, the slower the waves travel through it. And when they travel, they slow down, they still have a certain amount of energy they have to carry. So they have to get bigger to carry the same amount of energy per unit time. So we see the soil amplification. Uh, there's a large question of when was your... Um, Landfill created and how was it done? There are some areas that uh, if you have a well-engineered landfill that they really work to compact it, it can do as well as most other sedimentary areas. Um, and some of this risk can be found through CGS. Uh, the other one is the US Geological Survey has uh, created something called the Haywired scenario, which was a scenario of what an earthquake on the Hayward Fault would do. And they have a really detailed look at liquefaction and amplification around the different soils and some pretty detailed maps where you can see how you fit within that. Now, if you've got a high risk and you own your house, um, get earthquake insurance. You know, that's a good reason to be to be willing to pay it because it's not equal opportunity offenders with with earthquakes. You know, bad soils really increase mm -hmm. your risk. Well, Jay writes, any tips for those of us in manufactured homes, aside from being prepared by having a kit, which we do, are manufactured homes at greater risk? The manufactured homes are a real problem if they're not secured to the ground. So most of them will just be installed where like your main connection to the ground is your utilities. And then when you topple over and you pull the gas line out, uh, you've got a pretty bad fire risk. Mm -hmm. One thing you could do is to look at ways of better securing it to the ground. There are various um, uh, procedures for doing that um, that are not very expensive. And the uh, research has shown that they really make a difference. I mean, maybe not for the worst possible earthquake, but they definitely would be uh, increasing your ability to, to stay in place. And Jay also mentioned an earthquake kit. Now, I understand you don't have one in your home. Is that right? <laughs> yes, you've heard correctly. Um, I know that they're not going to be predicted. And I know that I've I've gotten my house retrofitted. I'm really pretty confident that I will be able to stay in my home. And that's probably the best place to stay afterwards. So I'm not going anywhere. I do have earthquake supplies. And the most important earthquake supply is water. And I like to see, however much water you're storing now, you should probably consider adding some more mm. because it's potentially our, our, our really biggest problem. But I also, you know, the idea that the, our response to the earthquake is to run away. I was hearing about buildings getting evacuated up in the, you know, self-evacuation at some buildings up in the Bay Area for this earthquake. Why? You know, what do you, what do you think is better by being outside? And... Um, the, it, it's our response to fire. It's sort of a, something trained into us for a lot of things, but getting out is probably not the, the most effective thing you can do. Obviously, if there's damage to your building, yes, you want to get out of it because an aftershock or if, you know, an aftershock that was bigger than the first one, and we changed the name and call the first one a foreshock, um, it's definitely possible. And, and therefore, if you've got damage, yes, but without it, I don't understand why people evacuate. So a good place to have a kit would probably be the car uh, if you needed to be, if you needed to leave. Uh, even. Right. Yeah. Well, 
and the other thing, most Californians, um, you know, some of us take public transport, but often we have our car with us. And that can be the best place to store something because even if you're not at home, if you are at home, your car is here. And if you're not, your car is still with you. Um, and so it can be a great place to put some really basic things. I do have a small thing in my car uh, with, again, some of the, one of those types of water that are supposed to be able to last for a really long time. And I still yep. probably don't remember to cycle them as often as I should, um, as well as a, like a Mylar blanket and um, old running shoes because women tend to wear shoes that maybe you don't want to walk for 10 out 10 miles if the roads are all out. Um, so just having something where I can get around a more comfortable shoes seems like a really good uh, backup position. We're talking earthquakes with Dr. Lucy Jones and how to stay safe. Let's go to Jim in Martinez. Oh, and you are listening to Forum, I should say. I'm Mina Kim. Let's go to Jim in Martinez next. Hi, Jim. Thanks for waiting. You're on. You're welcome. Uh, good morning. Um, I want to know uh, the effect that, of tides and just water. If you have a big rainstorm over a big area, it's a lot of you know, weight that accumulates on the ground and also tides influencing <clears throat> earthquakes. And also one other question unrelated to that is, um, what have you heard about earthquake lights? I've heard you know people talk about really strong earthquakes and they see some sort of luminescence from the ground or the rocks. Is it like piezoelectric effect or what, what is that? Hmm. Okay, Thanks, there's Jim. several things. Let's start with the earthquake lights. Um, we have the reports in a lot of situations, we're pretty sure that what they're seeing is like arcing transformers. Uh, so actually, you know, anthropogenic sources. There are uh, enough reports from other ones that we think that there's got to be something to it, uh, but they're hard to catch. Uh, piezoelectricity is, is definitely an option, but only in a rock that has a lot of quartz. It's about the only naturally forming rock that does a lot of piezoelectricity. So there's still one of the somewhat unknown phenomena. They're rare, uh, but it's probably real. Uh, go back to tides. Um, that's one thing that the you know seismologists have looked for for a long time. It seems like that extra bit of loading that comes with the solid earth tides should be some sort of factor. And there've been a variety of studies uh, trying to find it. I think the, the best one and probably, I think where we're coming down to is that there's probably a slight effect but it's the equivalent of having 1% of our earthquakes shifted in time by, by 12 hours. So there may be something there, very subtle. It's not at all useful for any sort of predictive uh, use of them. Um, and then uh, water loading, you're right. Poor water in the rock is a really big factor in, in producing earthquakes. When we go in the laboratory and we push on a fault, we see that if there's a high pore pressure, which is the pressure of the water within the pores of the rock that reduces the stress we need to move it. Um, and it's, but you have to change the pore pressure at the depth at which earthquakes are happening. And that's many miles below the surface of the earth. So we have yet to see a really strong impact with, with rainfall. There have been some studies suggesting that the drought might have slightly reduced the level of magnitude ones in the state, but it's that sort of impact. And again, the, um, the biggest earthquakes start even farther down, so they're even less likely to be affected by this. The one place you really can do it is you've got to keep the water above the ground for a long enough period of time or in the ground 
uh, to actually change the pressure. So if you build a reservoir, we have seen reservoir-induced earthquakes many times. Um, the Oroville earthquake in 1975 was probably connected to the construction of that dam. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an Aswan earthquake with the dam in Egypt. The biggest we've ever seen is 6.7 in Kazakhstan from like a 200-meter earth dam. The other way you can do it is by pumping water into the ground. That's what's going on with fracking. Now, the fracking itself doesn't uh, the water, the, the poor pressure changes are in the shallow rock and don't really produce big earthquakes, but they often then have contaminated fluids that they dispose of by pumping deep in the ground to get below the water table. And that's been setting off earthquakes. And um, the USGS even now has a, a supplementary earthquake risk page of the risk for the next year due to anthropogenic earthquakes during ones caused by pumping. And you can see this great increase going on like Western Texas is having magnitude threes more often than California recently. Yeah. Fascinating. I mean, it's interesting. I, I think about the things that we do uh, also in response to other issues. With this point that Anne is writing in, with Anne writes, all other natural events have been magnified by climate change. Have earthquakes been affected as well? <laughs> Answer that however yes. you wish, Dr. Jones. That, yeah, That one's easy. Uh, no, because the earthquakes are happening so far down, the change in the, the atmospheric conditions is not changing them. It, you know, the tornadoes, hurricanes, severe storms, those are all greatly increased risks at this point because of climate change, luckily not earthquakes. The one thing we do see with modernization is that the increase in urbanization yeah. has increased the losses to be faced with an earthquake because you need to be right on top of it. A big earthquake is a bigger area. If that's right underneath a big city, you do way more damage. And of course, we have much bigger cities than we used to with much more complex infrastructure to be disrupted by um, by the earthquake. So that's where our earthquake risk is increasing. Yeah. I, I mean, well, I really appreciate you being on to talk about and help us understand earthquakes better. And that's really the point, right? I mean, we're, we're sharing tips not to freak us out, but just so that cognitively, as you were saying earlier, psychologically, we have some sense of how to be better prepared and have a little more sense of control. <laughs> Right. Uh, right. You can't control the earthquake, but you can control your environment. So both psychologically and physically, you're going to be better off by doing that earthquake mitigation type of activities. Well, Dr. Jones, thanks so much for being on with us today. Been glad to be here. And my thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment and the Forum team for always being awesome. Have a great weekend, listeners. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. 
Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.